This audio teaching is provided by Segula.net. You are listening to a teaching from our series on the topic of worship. This teaching was recorded live at Eitzhaim Messianic Fellowship. Session. Uh, so today, this is going to be session four of our series on the Holy Spirit, or sorry, our series on worship. That was a series we did previously in, in Saskatchewan, was on the Holy Spirit. This is kind of like a continuation of that series, really. Um, a lot of the things that uh, we talked about in the series on the Holy Spirit, which is all available on our Segula website, Um is kind of leading up to some of what we're talking about here in this series on worship. So if you want, feel free to avail yourself of that resource if you would like. Um, So um, in the current trajectory, I'm thinking there's going to be about six or seven sessions total in this series. Uh, So this is session four. And... Today, I want to focus on one particular question, and that is, what role does repetition play in worship? So today, I want to zero in on, on repetition and liturgy, and does, should that have a role, and what sort of role is that supposed to have in a biblical definition of worship? So here I'm bringing up a word that has caused mixed feelings among followers of Yeshua, and that is the word liturgy. In the past few centuries, there's been mixed feelings about that. Uh, So when you hear the word liturgy, what comes to mind? Repetition. Repetition, yep. A set of prayers. Yeah, a set of prayers, yep. Corporate, that's, yeah. Yeah, the way you do things. Like a routine kind of, right? Uh, A structure or framework. Yeah, so so probably, I I think those are all all things that a lot of people would think of when when they hear the word liturgy. Uh, Here's one of the definitions from Merriam-Webster's dictionary. Uh, right or body of rights prescribed for public worship. So, you know, pre prefab prayers. Is, you know, I think that's that's part of liturgy. Um, yeah, terms like ritual, repetition, routine. Other words that start with R, I think, could be <laughs> summed up in this word liturgy. Okay, so these are the kind of things we think of, right? Um, in just a moment, I'll look at where this word comes from. There's actually a Greek word, uh, liturgeo, that uh, means something a little different, but we'll look at that in just a minute. Uh, anyway, so the question is, do these sorts of things belong to a biblical definition of worship? If so, how should they belong? Are there ways that they can be used wrongly or have been used wrongly? Uh, what's the role of liturgy and repetition in worship? And can they be bad? Can they be good? How do we embrace what is good and and uh, throw avoid the bad? 
So that's what I want to talk about today. So uh, a couple things. First, I want to do uh, a little very brief history of attitudes regarding liturgy uh, in uh, recent uh, Christianity. <laughs> and then I want to look at some biblical examples of are there what what does scripture have anything to say directly on this topic and then i want to talk a bit about the um this this idea uh called cultural liturgies and i'm going to be uh, drawing on uh the work of this uh christian uh writer theologian named james k.a smith i'll bring explain that more when we get there and just talk about what, what sort of routine it is that God has to offer us, right, through his word. All right, so start with a brief history. So for the last few thousand years, uh, liturgical rituals, prayers, songs, and these sorts of things have formed a core component of worship for most Jews and most Christians, right? This has been the normal sort of standard way that that God's people have have engaged in worship in worship historically, right? In the last couple centuries, there's been uh, there's been various movements within Christianity, particularly that have pushed back against liturgical worship, uh, and and often for good reasons, right? Uh, this became especially prominent in evangelicalism in the last century. So evangelicals decried what they saw as meaningless rituals done by Catholics and mainline Protestants, right? These people, you know, would claim to be Christians, attend church, go through the motions, but there was no heart behind it. It had no meaning. It was just empty, empty uh, ritual, right? And this was especially the case if you think back to when the Catholic Mass was done completely in Latin, the Bible was read in Latin, and people would come, and they didn't know Latin, and so it meant nothing to them. It was just, you know, just empty ritual, routine, rote. And how's that worship, right? So this, this was the pushback that the evangelical movement was saying, hey, that, we need to get away from that emptiness and have something with more meaning, right? Uh, and so, um, I mean, even you think of the the kinds of repetition in things like praying the rosary, right? Where you're doing the same thing over and over again. And, and uh, that, you know, evangelicalism reacted against that and said, no, you know, we're not, we're not going to go there. We're going to try to have something more meaningful, to make worship more meaningful. Uh, so for good reasons, there was this reaction against this sort of ritualistic and liturgical form of worship. And in evangelicalism in the 20th century, this led to a strong aversion to any sort of liturgical prayer or repetitive forms of worship. Of course, there were exceptions. There were some evangelical denominations that still had elements of liturgy. But for the most part, um, mainstream evangelicalism, I think, took a strong stance against liturgy. Uh, this led to the idea that in order for prayer and worship to be meaningful, it has to be spontaneous, has to be fresh, new, uh, not, not prefabricated, right? So not something that you compose ahead of time and, and everyone recites together. It has to be, has to be you know, th- this, this idea that spontaneous equals meaningful, pre-composed equals not meaningful. That was, that was kind of the way it led, right? So repetition and ritual 
the argument goes, inevitably become empty and meaningless. And once something becomes meaningless and empty, it's no longer worship. So that's, that's kind of the train of thought that, that has gone on. This idea is also common in forms of Christianity that emphasize certain roles of the Holy Spirit, uh, like in Pentecostalism, certain charismatic movements, right? It's a common assumption that the Holy Spirit works in antithesis to man-made structures, right? So you've got, you've got structure, order, um, repetition, all these things on this side, and then you've got the Holy Spirit and spontaneity and, and uh, flying by the seat of your pants on this side. Um, that, kind of, that kind of dichotomy. I'm, I'm exaggerating it. I'm caricaturing it a little bit. But the, this is kind of the, the way it's sometimes perceived, right? That Holy Spirit is that, you know, zany, you know, crazy. You never know what's going to happen when the Holy Spirit's around. It's going to change things. And, and uh, the, the kinds of churches that are liturgical are the ones that don't have the Holy Spirit. They're the ones that are dead. It's just old people that go there, right? That, that's this, the, the stereotype sometimes. A truly spirit-filled prayer is always spontaneous. A spirit-filled worship service is one that is unstructured or, or loosely structured and changes spontaneously through the work of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, liturgy and the Holy Spirit are at odds with each other. You can't have both. That's, that's uh, one train of thought that I think is, is fairly common out there. So, believe it or not, the Messianic Torah movement has inherited a lot from evangelicalism including the charismatic movement. And and for the most part, I'm going to be honest, uh, for the most part, I think that's a good thing. Uh, for example, the high value placed on God's word, the Bible as God's word, right? The need to follow the Bible rather than just tradition. The need for Yeshua as our source of salvation. The need for God's spirit to empower us as his witnesses. The need to share the message of Yeshua with others. These are things we share in common with evangelicalism right, that uh, are not necessarily there in other forms of Christianity. So, so even theologically, uh, most Messianic believers have way more in common with evangelicals than with either Catholics or liberal Protestants, right? I mean, we have way more in common with evangelicals on, on these things. So, um, so we come by it honestly, right? It's, it's, it's not surprising that within the Messianic Torah movement, you see Sometimes this sort of aversion to liturgy and repetition uh, shows up in, in different forms, but occasionally you encounter it, right? Some people want to push back against, against, uh, against liturgy. And it, sometimes it's, it's not necessarily a bad thing, right? Sometimes we do need to, to stop and ask ourselves, why do we do what we do, right? Uh, not just blindly accept. That's, that's part of what this, this series is about. So I'm not trying to put down evangelicalism as a whole, or overgeneralize it. Um, we need to be very grateful for those who have gone before us and have made it possible for us to know what we know about scriptures today. Um, but yeah, we need to honestly question: okay, What is the the role of liturgy? Is it is it this clear black and white thing that liturgy bad, spontaneous is good? Let's 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 talk about that. Um, so, you know, this, this whole trend we, we've talked about is this reaction to empty forms of ritual and liturgy. And there have been legitimately empty forms of ritual and liturgy out there, we have to admit, right? 
even even the most pro liturgy person i would like to hope sees it sees that there's a problem with some of the ways it's been used historically in christianity okay there's another trend a more recent trend within evangelicalism a reaction a pendulum swing back the other way so you had this pendulum swing away from liturgy where liturgy is bad and we're trying to get away from that kind of worship, now we see the pendulum swinging the other way. So it's actually a, a big trend within evangelicalism now to, to realize that, hey, liturgy can be good. It can, it, you know, used in the right way. It can be healthy. It can be edifying. It can uh, be meaningful. It doesn't have to be empty and meaningless. It can be very full of meaning, and it can be a very important part of our worship. And so... Um, you know, this this push against structure, I, I think there were certain generations that that idea really jived with. Uh, I, maybe it came with the hippie movement, I'm not sure, with this idea that, you know, we don't want any structure, we just want it to be free and and uh, rosy and, and happy and all those sorts of things. But evangelicals have begun to realize that as humans— we actually need structure in our lives. We need routine in a, in a good sense. We need a, a good sort of routine in our lives. We need, we need structure. We need roots. We need this groundedness and that, that some of these really spontaneous expressions didn't have. So this, this trend shows up in several forms. We see some evangelical churches becoming more liturgical. Uh, they realize that for most of history, God's people have worshipped liturgically, and they say that we need to get back to the roots of our faith. Unfortunately, what usually happens is that people only go back as far as the 4th century, right? So the roots of our faith are found in 4th century Catholicism. That's Sadly, that's often what happens, right, when... when uh, People see so 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 it's now becoming in vogue, for example, for uh, evangelicals to do Lent or or Advent or or some of these other Catholic practices that that traditionally or at least uh, for a lot of history evangelicals didn't do. Now it's it's more you know it's more popular. It's the it's the hip thing to do these days. So that's one trend is is that we see. Uh, evangelical churches embracing um, forms of liturgy and structure and and things like that. Uh, A second trend, and one that is a bit more troubling, in my opinion, is that we see people leaving evangelical churches to join Catholic or Greek Orthodox churches. Uh, There's there's a huge movement of evangelicals converting to Catholicism and to Greek Orthodoxy. It's, It's huge. And, you know, it's People are hungry for more structure in their lives. They're, they're hungry for more structure in their faith, and they realize that perpetual spontaneity just doesn't cut it. And, and so these older historical forms of Christianity are appealing to them because they see uh, there's, there's structure, there's routine, there's roots, there's, there's all these things that they're, they're hungry for, that they've been missing. It leads them to embrace these these forms of Christianity. A third trend, though admittedly not as big, 
is that some evangelicals are embracing Torah. Uh, This is certainly not the only, but definitely part of the impetus behind the Messianic Torah movement is this this search for more, more structure in our faith, right? This search for more groundedness, for our roots, for, for coming back to uh, a faith that is not just abstract and spontaneous and all over the place, but something that's, that's grounded, that's uh, tangible, and that's, that, that has the structure that people are craving. And we'll, we'll come back to this in, in a moment, but... Um, so within the Messianic Torah movement is this, this rediscovery of the value of liturgy. That's, that's one of the things that we see in, in some forms of the Messianic Torah movement. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll bring that up again um, later. But for now, I want to look a little bit at what Scripture might have to say on this topic. This is by no means going to be an exhaustive survey of everything Scripture has to say on this topic, but just a couple little things that I think might be helpful to clarify and to look at. So, first is this Greek word, leitergeo, or uh, leitergesis. So, this is where we get the word liturgy. Uh, Literally in Greek, it just means to serve or to minister or to worship. So, for example, in Luke 1.23, it says that uh, Zechariah, when the time of his service was ended, he went to his home. So Zechariah the priest was at the temple performing liturgia in Greek, his service, right? So his service is over, so now he's, he's heading home. His, his term of ministering in the temple, that's what, the term, that's what liturgia means in this passage. Um, Acts 13 verse 2 talks about the, uh, the disciples in Antioch, uh, Paul and Barnabas among them, and it says they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. The word worshiping there is uh, liturgeo, right? So they're, they're, they're ministering to the Lord and fasting, right? So probably that involved prayer, maybe singing, um, uh, that sort of thing, right? Not necessarily just fixed prayers, though. This, this could be um, any sort of prayers, um, Romans 15, verses 15 to 16, Paul talks about the grace given me by God to be a minister. There's our word, liturgeo, uh, a minister of Messiah Yeshua to the Gentiles. Okay, so it's a little different than our English word liturgy, right? It doesn't necessarily mean a fixed prayer. That's not, it, it basically means service or ministry, right? Okay, so some, some believers uh, oppose the concept of liturgical prayer on the basis of Matthew 6, 7 to 8. This came up in our discussion a couple weeks ago. Uh, I'm going to open it up and we can read that. Matthew 6, 7 to 8 says, When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Uh, so this, this translation says, do not heap up empty phrases. Some translations are going to say, do not use vain repetitions or meaningless repetition or, or something like that. Often there's the word repetition in it. 
so according to one interpretation of these verses, believers are supposed to always pray spontaneous prayers. We should never pray prayers that someone else composed and wrote down for people to recite, because that's meaningless repetition. That's, that's one interpretation of, of these verses. In fact, some would go so far as to say that the, this, these verses rule out the use of Jewish synagogue liturgy. Jewish prayer is wrong because it's liturgical, which is meaningless repetition. True Christian prayer is always extemporaneous. It's always spontaneous, right? It flows, flows off your tongue as you're making it up as you go. There's a couple problems with this interpretation. I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit and... Um, that's yeah. I'm not sure anyone would state it quite so starkly, but but sometimes it helps to state state something starkly so you can think about it and be like, hey, yeah, that doesn't make sense. Uh, there's a couple reasons why this doesn't make sense. And um, first of all, Yeshua doesn't say, "Don't use vain repetition like the Jews do." That's not what he says. He says, "Don't use vain repetition like." Who? Like the Gentiles. Don't, don't uh, heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, right? He's, he's not like the heathen, the pagans. Ta ethne in Greek. This is like Gentiles, heathen. Um, Gentile is not necessarily a bad term. Um, Paul talks, says, I, you know, I'm talking to you Gentiles. He's speaking to believers. But there are times when it means pagan, and this is one of those cases, right? Uh, it's this, in this case, it's, he's not talking about believing Gentiles. He's talking about the pagans out there. Don't do what the pagans do when they pray, because they think they will be heard for their many words. He's, so he's not talking about a Jewish form of prayer. He's talking about pagan prayer, a pagan way of praying. Okay, so that's reason number one. Reason number two is Yeshua and the apostles participated in the synagogue and temple liturgy themselves. Okay, Luke chapter 4. Yeshua goes to his hometown, Nazareth, and it says he went to the synagogue according to his custom, or as was his custom, depending on how you want to translate that phrase. In other words, it was, it was Yeshua's custom to go to the synagogue on Shabbat. Right? On the Shabbat, he went to the synagogue as was his custom. Just like you know, uh, cha- uh, two chapters earlier, it says that Yeshua's parents went up to Jerusalem for the Passover as was their custom. You know, they, this was what they did. This was their habit. That they followed God's feasts. They went up to the temple for Passover. Yeshua, this was his habit. This is what he did. He went up to the synagogue, went into the synagogue on Shabbat. So that's Luke chapter 4. Acts 17 says Paul went to the synagogue on the Shabbat. So you put these two verses together. It was Yeshua's custom to attend synagogue on Shabbat. It was the apostles' custom to attend synagogue on Shabbat. Both Yeshua and the apostles are are participating in the synagogue worship, right? Don't tell me they sat there with their ears plugged the whole time that liturgical prayer is going on. Of course not. They're participating in the liturgical worship of the synagogue and the temple. Okay, so that's reason number two. Reason number three is Yeshua goes on in this passage to give us the Lord's Prayer, which is by definition liturgical. I don't see any other way around that. So he says, 
don't do vain repetitions like the Gentiles. Instead, pray like this, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So if he's saying, don't do liturgy, instead, just pray, that doesn't make sense, right? That's not what he's saying. Okay, so the Greek word for vain repetition or or heaping up empty phrases, however you want to translate it, it's uh, vatologeo, which means to speak in a way that that um, images the kind of speech patterns of one who stammers uh, to use the same words over and over again or to speak without thinking. Um, that's based on uh, uh, mainstream uh, scholarly lexicon, Greek lexicon. Um, so other translations have vain repetitions, meaningless repetitions, to babble repetitiously. It seems that Yeshua is referring to pagan practices such as mantras, incantations, mechanical prayer formulas. The idea that repeating some phrase or formula will guarantee an answer to our prayers. That's wrong. That's pagan, right? That's like magic. It's like a spell. This is, that, that has no place in our prayers, right? And... Uh, and so that's what Yeshua teaches. Okay, so I think scripture is clear that there's a place for both spontaneous and pre-composed prayer. We see examples of spontaneous prayer, right? Like when Abraham's servant arrives at the well uh, and he's looking for a wife for Isaac. Uh, he doesn't just rattle off some some sort of liturgy. He has to he has to pray something specific for this circumstance, right? We see that happen over and over again in the scriptures. But we also see examples of liturgical prayer in the scriptures. So the Avinu, the Our Father, the Lord's Prayer, is is one example we just saw. How about Acts two, verse forty two? And at the end of Acts chapter 2, it says, um, well, in verse 41, the the people listening to Peter's sermon, it says about 3,000 were added to to them that day. And then in verse 42, and they devoted themselves to, to four things, to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. It doesn't say to prayer. It says to the prayers, plural. And it doesn't say which prayers, but, but it seems to be talking about a specific set of prayers, it, right? This, it would, if in a first century Jewish context, you would think, oh, well, it's talking about liturgy, talking about liturgical prayers that were part of, uh, part of the worship of Israel in those days. Okay, we'll even look at the prevalence of hymns in scripture the book of psalms for example (laughs) the book of psalms is like the temple hymn book right we've got uh they're all pre-composed prayers that's not wrong to recite a psalm right that this is this is uh um this is a form of liturgy that we have in scripture we see little snippets of apostolic liturgy in in some of the different passages like in for example um Mary's song, the, uh, the mother of Yeshua, when uh, she says, I, 
My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for the Mighty One has done great things to me, and holy is his name. Like, this is uh, like an ancient liturgy, right? Uh, the Song of Zechariah, another example. Um, and, and by the way, both of those are all about God restoring Israel and destroying Rome. Both of those songs. <laughs> uh, even though they, those ended up in Catholic liturgy, I don't think the Catholics understand what those, those two pieces of liturgy are really about. And we have other examples in Paul's letters where he'll, he'll break into this, this poetic passage, and, and most scholars say that was actually uh, a, a liturgy that he, th- his readers would have been familiar with in those days. He's quoting early, uh, early liturgy from among the followers of Yeshua. You know, sometimes also we forget that worship songs and hymns are a form of pre-composed worship, right? Even the most anti liturgy people out there that I know of, they're still fine with singing worship choruses, right? And, and yet that's, a, that's liturgy, right? That's, that's liturgical. By, by definition, it's pre-composed, and we're doing it together as a community. Um, so, yeah, all this to say this, there, there's no, nowhere in Scripture that makes liturgy out to be something that's not for followers of Yeshua or not for those who want to follow the God of Israel. Um, on, on the contrary, we see it come up over and over again. Liturgy is what makes corporate prayer possible, right? Because we can't all pray together in one voice without having something that's pre-composed. However, there can be a bad side to liturgy, and I think scripture speaks of this as well. I want to look at Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. It says, This people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And it goes on, but just, um, just that, that point. Like, think about that for a moment. These people honor me. They, they draw near to me with their mouth. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And I think, sadly, there have been too many instances of people engaged in liturgical prayer where it has been exactly that, right? Where it has been people, go, you know, mouthing the words, going through the motions, but their hearts are far from God. And God condemns that. God, God um, says that that has no place in, in worship of him. But remember, this can be applied to any form of corporate worship. It's not like pre-composed prayer is somehow, you know, the, the only target here. And we talked about this uh, in the last session in the context of the sacrifices where we see prophets like Isaiah and Hosea and, and uh, Amos coming against people bringing meaningless offerings, Right? Shut the doors of my temple. Stop the sounds of your songs. You know, I can't stand your religious gatherings because it's, it's vain worship, right? And so this is a warning, no matter what type of worship we're trying to engage in, that our hearts have to be there. And it, without our hearts there, it's not worship. So, speaking of hearts... 
I want to I want to unpack that a little bit. Let's let's talk about what what your heart is in scriptural thinking. And to get at that, I want to bring up the this uh, um, some of the concepts that uh, James K. A. Smith raises. Uh, so James K. A. Smith, one of the things he's known for uh, as an author is this concept of cultural liturgies, um, and I'll explain what that means in such such a in, in just a minute. But uh, the, the the idea behind this is the power of repetition. Uh, repetition is is powerful, and that can be used for good or for bad in our lives. Uh, the power of habits and the power of uh, certain types of habits that the power they have to shape us to be and to desire and to long for certain things. Um, so Smith goes in a slightly different direction than I would go. Um, but, but I think he has some helpful insights that make sense from a biblical perspective. So I'll try and, and unpack some of that. And, and part of this is related to the Hebrew word lev, which means heart. Levav or lev. Uh, both, both words are used interchangeably. So too often in our society, we tend to think of, we, we assume that humans are at their core thinking beings. Humans are, are, are little brains walking around with feet. That, uh, sometimes, sometimes we get that, that impression, right? That, that our intellect is at the core of who we are. And Smith argues, however, that what really drives us as humans is not our intellect, but our affections, our cravings, our, our hungers, right? So, so humans are not thinking beings at their core. Humans are what he calls affective beings. This is different than feeling. Right? I mean, some, some people, there's different personalities out there. Some people are more thinking personalities. Some people are more feeling-type personalities, right? But your, your affection, your, your cravings, your longings, that goes deeper than both, thinking and feeling. It's, it's beyond both. We're, we're not, by nature, thinking things, and neither are we feeling things. We are appetites. We are appetites with legs walking around. That's basically what we are as people. And I think this is what the Hebrew word lev gets at because the Hebrew word heart uh, is used to, des- for the Hebrew word for heart, lev, is used to describe the core of our being, right? And it's not what Hallmark teaches you about the heart, right? <laughs> In Western society and here in Canada, North America, when people talk about your heart, we, we think of the heart as the seat of what? Emotions. Of emotions, right. We think your heart is the seat of your emotions. And so we have this weird kind of anthropology uh, in popular circles where it's like your heart is where you feel, your brain is where you think, and sometimes somehow these are like whatever. Uh, that's, that's not how it is in a Hebraic Perspective, you know, when Hebrew and the Hebrew scriptures talk about your heart, this is. It includes feeling. It includes thinking. 
it in, you know, how many places in Scripture do you see this phrase, the thoughts of their heart? Right? The thought of your heart. The thoughts of your heart. That sort of thing. You think with your heart in Hebrew. Um, it's the place where you make your decisions. Your heart decides what to do. Right? So when, when in Proverbs, when it talks about guarding your heart, it's not talking about guarding your feelings or your emotions from getting emotionally hurt. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about guarding your entire inner decision-making process, right? The thing about this decision-making process is that, for the most part, it's not based on thinking. Um, 95% of the decisions you make on a daily basis happen without thinking. That means only 5% of what you do on a daily basis is a, is a conscious choice that you're making, that you, you think about it and you're like, oh yeah, I should do this. 95%, it just, it's automated. Happens automatically. Don't even think about it. It is scary, yeah. It's scary to think that most of the time we're on autopilot as humans. Uh, I mean, it, um, yeah, what you do that 95% of the time, it's dictated really by your habits and by your hungers. So this means that your habits control you far more than your brain does, right? But not only do your habits control your decisions and behaviors, they also control your emotions and your reactions to the world around you. Most of the sensory input you get, what you, what you hear, what you see, what you taste, what you smell, what you feel, most of that is processed automatically. You're not conscious of it. You're not thinking of it because otherwise you'd be on stimulation overload, right? There's like there's too much coming at you to process it all. And so most of it just, you, t- you know, it happens, gets taken care of automatically, subconsciously. It would be way too exhausting to have to think cons- consciously about every action and decision and reaction and feeling. So most of these things are on autopilot, right? I, I get decision fatigue by the end of every day where I'm like, I'm too tired of making decisions. I can't make any more. And, uh, and that's only the 5% that I'm conscious of. All the rest happen automatically and I don't have to worry about them. <laughs> or maybe I do have to worry about them, but I don't know that I have to worry about them. <laughs> so the point is that our habits shape our cravings and our cravings shape our habits. But what's interesting about habits is that they can be changed. It's possible to change our habits. It takes work, but it is possible. So it's not like a deterministic thing where you're stuck yeah you're you're, you know fate is sealed you can't do anything about it no there is stuff you can do about it right okay so here's a quote from uh, james k smith he says to be human is to be animated and oriented by some vision of the good life some picture of what counts as flourishing and we want that we crave it we desire it so all of us, all of us have this, this craving for, we could call it happiness, for, for satisfaction, for what we think of as like the ultimate good in the world, right? Like what, what is, what's the point of being here on earth? Well, you know, we crave to, to fill that, right? And God created us to find our true satisfaction in him. The biblical version of the good life is I think it's really summed up in the word shalom, right? Shalom, you know, we translate it as, as peace or hello, 
one or the other, <laughs> but, but it's, it's more than that, right? It's, it's, it's fullness, right? The verb shalem means to fill. It's, it's uh, completeness, wholeness, right? Everything that, that is good and that is, that is what, we're, what we're hoping for in life, right? Um, and that comes through, through God, that comes through his kingdom, right? But there are, com- there are competing vi- versions of the good life out there. There's, there's, there's competing messages out there about, no, the ultimate good is actually this. Big example is consumerism. Message of consumerism at, at its core is stuff will make you happy. You need stuff in order to be happy. You, you consume stuff, you buy stuff, you... you uh, get stuff that makes you happy. This is a false gospel, really, what it is. It, it's, it's, it's trying to say, you know, as humans, you were created to get stuff, not to find God. It's, it's, it's a false gospel. And it's so pernicious. It's everywhere around us, and it's so easy to get caught up in it. And one of the things that James K. Smith does that is, is helpful is he talks about, he uses this term, uh, cultural liturgies. So there are ways that, he says, the most powerful liturgies out there are not in churches or in places of worship. The most powerful liturgies are in the secular world. Take consumerism for an example. There's a, there's a liturgical calendar of consumerism. It's all the major holidays that are on or your Hallmark calendar, Right? Everyone is a reason to buy something. <laughs> you know, you've got, uh, and, and it's like they're, they're making more and more of them. There's, there's newer holidays coming up, and there's, there's always a reason to buy something, right? There's always the new fad, the new decorations to pull out, the new card to buy. And this, this is the, the liturgical calendar of consumerism. The shopping mall. This is something I found fascinating that I didn't really know. Apparently... Uh, the shopping mall is like the consumerist cathedral in more ways than one. Supposedly, the early architectural designs for shopping mall were actually based on cathedrals. And the idea uh, behind, uh, this isn't so much the case today, but uh, some of the early models for shopping mall was one thing you, co- you couldn't see outside. Uh, and that was on purpose. Because the idea was that when you enter the mall, you kind of lose sense of time. You get lost in this kind of eternal world of, of the shopping mall. And because and, the longer you're in the mall, the better it is for the mall, right? The more, the more money they make, the longer you're there. So uh, the, the idea is to get you in and to get you to stay as long as possible. And... So the shopping mall is like this, this uh, you know, the liturgical center, cathedral of the, of the consumerist gospel. And guess what? We're being bombarded every day, all the time, by the evangelism of the consumerist gospel. It's called marketing. It's everywhere. I, th- I mean, just think about how pervasive marketing is, and it's no wonder... It's so easy to get sucked up into consumerism. We're surrounded by it every day. It's constantly bombarding us. And so you get fed these messages over and over again. Oh, 
You need this to make you happy. Well, this will make you happy. This will satisfy some need. This will give you... They're all visions of the good life that are not God. That's what they all are. So here's the, here's the thing, though. Uh, and there are, there are other competing versions we could talk about, like sports. Sports is a big one. Um, you look at the kind of liturgies and rituals that go on in a big sporting event. Uh, take the Super Bowl, for example. Look at, look at the, you know, the singing of the national anthem and the, you know, the teams uh, getting ready and stuff like that. There's these rituals that go on, and, and, it, and it does something to you when you're there, right? Um, busyness is another, another one. These are all competing visions of what, what it is to be human, what is good for us as humans, what, uh, what is the good life. None of these things appeal to us on the basis of our affections, or, or, sorry, on the basis of our thinking. They appeal to us on the basis of our affections, our hungers, right? Not on the basis of our intellect. No one becomes a consumerist because they were argued into consumerism through rational a rational argument like you know you just think about it you know let's look at the merits of consumerism and here's here's a tract the five five <laughs> principles of consumerism of the consumerist gospel and and you know think about it and maybe you can be, no it's not like that like that would be ridiculous when when you actually think about it logically it's it's a ridiculous message that stuff can make you happy that stuff can satisfy you when stuff is so fleeting and temporary so it's not based on your intellect. It's uh, in Isaiah we actually read why spend money on something that you cannot see that is not true. In yeah, yeah. Why spend money on what is what is not food? Not yeah. There's a, there's a saying from Alcoholics Anonymous: "Your best thinking got you here." And so the, the point is, like, really, all this is, is also an, um, what addictions are all about, right? Your, your, your thinking, our, our intellects are very weak when it comes to actually changing our behavior. Um, most of what we do is not based on our, on our thinking brains, right? It's, it's uh, our cravings, our hungers that drive us all the time. So... What plays a big role in this, of course, is, is our habits. And some habits are more formative than others, right? Overall, our habits shape our cravings and vice versa. Our, our cravings shape what, what we do, right? So the habits with the strongest effects on us are what Smith calls liturgies. So these are not just things you do. They do something to you, right? We, we tend to think of, of what we do as, oh, that's just stuff I do. But the fact is that what we do, especially certain things that are influential, they, they shape us. They, they, they change us. They affect us, right? They turn us into something. And uh, this, uh, this relates to the power of repetition and, and routine, right? You can think of, musicians or athletes where you repeat the same thing over and over again to get it right and so it becomes automatic you know the perfect uh, um, you're trying to practice a piece on the piano and you you get it just right so that it, it uh, by repetition you're able to 
internalize it, right? And same with, with athletic, uh, athletic stuff. You practice it over and over again. And this is the way that it used to be for education, right? Kids used to, to learn by repeating stuff in, in the old schoolhouses. You look at the, the early rabbinic yeshivas, there was, there was in, in each uh, little Beit Midrash, there was a person, their job was called the Tana, which literally means the repeater. And so their job was to, to repeat these, these sayings of, of whether it's scripture or all these or, or previous rabbis for these little kids to memorize. And so they were trained to repeat it over and over again, and these kids would, would memorize it from just sheer repetition. Um, when we repeat things, it forms a groove in our inner being that affects us in ways we're not always conscious of. And this is one of the reasons why the kind of music we listen to, for example, can have a formative effect on us, even if we're not conscious of it, right? They shape us to be a certain way. What do we call it when we place something that's not God in a place that only belongs to God? Idolatry. That's right. And so, so these competing visions of the good life are really competing. They're competing for the place that belongs only to God. They're idols. Consumerism can be an idol uh, when, when we let it take that place. This is what we're striving for. This is what our, our, our habits, our cravings are geared towards is getting stuff when that should be geared towards God, Right? If we resist developing godly patterns of behavior, we will get suckered into other forms of repetition that are rival liturgies. And so this is the point that Smith makes that I, th- I want to try to bring home, is this idea that liturgy and repetition and habit are inevitable. They're, they're going to happen whether we want them to or not. And so the question is, what kind of things do we want to be repeating in our lives? What kinds of habits do we want to be cultivating in our lives? And this is where structure, having structure in our daily lives, having structure in our corporate worship, having, having these sorts of routines can be a very powerful thing. These are things that, that can change us, that can shape us, that mold us, that do something to us by us continually doing them. Uh, so this is not to not to negate the importance of worship being meaningful. I think I think that's that's very important, right? Um, but there are times, and I'll admit I've I've had times like this where you come on Shabbat, for example, and you're honestly not feeling it, and it, it's hard to to like to be like, you know, maybe you're tired or you had a bad week or or there's something something on your mind or, or whatever it is and you're like I honestly don't feel it sometimes just immersing yourself in in the Shabbat in the prayers in the in the worship can change us even when we don't feel like it right sometimes we need that kind of structure and routine because how often does it happen that we don't feel like it and if we don't have some sort of structure, then we would just say, oh, never mind. This is the power of positive habits, the power of positive liturgies, right? 
So true worship should engage our entire being. It should engage us on an intellectual level, on an emotional level, and it should satisfy a very deep hunger within our souls that transcends both thinking and feeling. I want to just close by thinking about the way Torah functions as a liturgy, right? We've got these, we've got these uh, competing liturgies out in the secular world trying to shape us. But look at what Torah offers us. Torah offers us, for example, a calendar. The biblical calendar is meant to shape us. It's a cycle. It's a, it's, there's repetition, right? Every seven days we get to another Shabbat. We repeat it over and over and over again. And going through that shapes us, even if we're not always conscious of it shaping us. Um, it, it shapes us to desire God more, to have our craving fixed on him, to find our satisfaction in him. The, the festivals, we go through this yearly cycle where we have Passover. You know, you clean the house out of, le- uh, of leaven. The Passover lamb comes. We, we celebrate this redemption that we have in Yeshua. We um, count up to Shavuot, the giving of the Torah, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We go through the dry summer months, right? We remember some of these tragedies that have taken place, the 9th of Av, 17th of Tammuz. We come to Elul, the season of repentance. We remember we need to repent. We need to prepare our hearts. We need to get ready for the day of trumpets, for the blast leading up to this big, great, holy day of atonement, realizing our utter dependence on God for our atonement and breaking through that into the absolute joy of Sukkot. And, and we, so we have these cycles. And what this does is this presents a framework for spiritual growth. I believe that the biblical calendar gives us a, a liturgy, if you want to call it that, a liturgy for getting the most possible spiritual growth out of a year. And we go through this again and again and again. And, and each time, you know, we, we, we learn new things. We, we, we uh, encounter it in a different way, right? But it shapes us. It molds us. And so, so this is one example. But, but we see other examples as well. The Torah gives us these sorts of frameworks. And the, uh, it gives us structure in our lives. It gives us something tangible. And, and some of these are based on tradition, Right. So, for example, every Friday night, our family, we have challah, we have wine or grape juice, and we do the blessings. And these are the things our kids remember. None of those, there's nowhere in the Bible that says explicitly, thou shalt have wine and grape, ju- or grape juice and wine and, and challah every Friday night to start your Shabbat. It doesn't say that explicitly in Scripture. There's no Torah commandment to do that, right? Um, but there's something really meaningful in these cycles. There's something really meaningful in having that kind of structure because that's what our kids remember. That's the thing that our kids uh, look forward to every week, right? When you have a three-year-old, he's not able to think abstractly about what Shabbat is, its theological significance and things like that. But he remembers the grape juice and the challah. And he remembers the joy of sitting together as a family every week of having the candles and, and uh, 
fellowshipping together and, and, and these warm times as a family, he, those are the things he remembers. Uh, and that's what makes Shabbat a joy to him. So all of this really is, is a, basically a, a way of arguing that liturgy can be a powerful and a helpful thing. One thing this session hasn't gone into is how to choose liturgies or, or what sort of liturgies should be incorporated into, say, a Shabbat service. That's not something I'm getting into here. This is just a foundational framework to say that liturgy can be a positive thing. And the next step in the conversation is to say, okay, how do we take it there to make it something positive? You know, I really think that uh, this movement that we see in evangelicalism of, of believers going back to Catholicism or Greek Orthodoxy, I really think that a lot of these people, if they could just see Torah and see what it was like, they'd see that this is what they're hungry for. The Torah offers them what they're, what they're hungry for. And we are so blessed and privileged uh, to be those whom God has revealed his Torah to, not because we're so great, not because we're so much smarter than everyone else, but because God has graciously revealed himself to us. He's given us his son Yeshua, and he's given us his commandments, which are good and meaningful and that shape us in a positive way. So let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you've, you've given us your word, that you've given us your appointed times, that you've given us your commandments, and that we can be shaped and molded through these things to become more and more sanctified and conform to the image of your son, Yeshua. Please, Father, continue to work in each of us. I know that we will never escape this, this uh, path of sanctification here in this life. We'll never arrive and say, we're perfect now, but by your grace, may we always continually be improving and continually becoming more and more like Yeshua. I pray for your blessing on our fellowship today and the rest of our conversation and that you would guide each person on their way home. We thank you for this time in Yeshua's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. The goal of Segula is to cast a vision for a healthy and mature Messianic Torah movement. This series of teachings on Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, is made possible for the help of our ministry partners and supporters. For more information about this ministry, please visit www.segula.net. May the Father richly bless you as you seek Him, and together may we all become a glorious people in Messiah.